This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And all month, we're playing the best commencement speeches we've come across over the last two decades and longer. And also a couple of the worst, because my goodness, they can be entertaining too. Really bad speeches. I mean, if you don't have to sit through them. Hey, Jesse, what's the uh, circumstance of this song? Why are we listening to it? And it was first written for the coronation of King Edward VII (laughs) and Queen Alexandria in 1902. Dedicated by special permission to his most gracious majesty, King Edward VII. But the coronation was postponed due to the king falling sick. So the performance was not until the 2nd of October, 1902, at the Sheffield Festival by the Sheffield Choir. So that's why we listen to this song. It makes no sense. No, there's no reason it's been dedicated for, for graduation. But it's the song and that's that. Yeah. And we're not critics here. By the way, we really don't like critics. So if you notice, we are not. We don't generally dump on stuff here. But We're critical of critics. We're critical of critics, exactly. And I think we can unify around that. By the way, great British accent, Jesse. <laughs> so today, the commencement speech we care about is given by Leanne Tui at Christian Brothers University. And that's a private Catholic university, the oldest university in Memphis, Tennessee, and you know Leanne Tui because Sandra Bullock played her and got an Oscar for playing her in the movie The Blind Side. And Leanne Tui's family became involved in the life of a young black man who was largely abandoned as a child. Eventually adopted the young man. And this young man, Michael Orr, goes on to play football in the NFL. In fact, he was a first-round draft choice of the Baltimore Ravens in 2009 and currently plays for the Carolina Panthers. And by the way, we're broadcasting from Oxford, Mississippi, home of Ole Miss, where Michael Orr played, where Leanne Tui went to college, and where Sean Tui, her husband, was a standout rock star, point guard, and a superb athlete. Then went on into the franchising business, started to own one, then two, and now own who know who knows how many, 60, 70, 80, a whole bunch. And they did this remarkable thing, this remarkable act of love for a stranger. And changed his life and so many others. Let's take a listen to how Leanne addressed these graduates back in 2010. We firmly believe that God is in control of this story in our lives right now. A lot of things we've learned from this. Value. Value is one of them. What do those words mean? You go into an office... You interview for a job, you're going to want someone to value. You're going to hope that they look at you and think that you have worth and that you have value, something that can contribute to the next level of your life, whatever that may be. And then you look at people and you value them. It's a two-way street. Now, you'll leave here today. Everyone in this auditorium will leave here today, and before the day ends, you will look at someone this day and you will put value on them. Whether it's someone you pass in the parking lot, at the grocery store tonight, the guy pumping gas next to you, wherever you may be, in your mind, you go, eh, eh. You size up somebody. We all do it. If you say you don't, you're lying. We all do it. Let me tell you about my son, Michael Orr. Finest young man you will ever meet. Immensely intelligent, extremely athletic, the best tackle in the NFL except from a mother's perspective. Society deemed him valueless. 
My son got off of a bus every day at Poplar and Ridgeway and walked to school. I'm going to tell you that 30 or 40,000 cars a day passed him. There was not a soul in this world that cared whether that young man lived or died. If he had fallen dead right there on the street, no one would have known whom to contact. He wasn't using the correct last name. He wasn't sure when his birthday was. Things that you take for granted and instill in your kids every day. Society deemed Michael Orr valueless. You take him into a home and you love him and you give him hope and you give him opportunity. And people, it will change a life. I've lived it. I've lived it. This young man was so close to falling through the cracks that it will rock your world when you really think about the opportunity that could have been lost with this young man's life. And through, a, you know, just some everyday circumstances, our paths cross. In our house, we call it a miracle. As I told this distinguished group behind me earlier, childbirth is truly easier to explain than how we got to where we are with Michael. It has been God-driven. He has value, and no one saw it. Value, the word that Leanne uses, it has a lot more meaning after hearing her explain it. Let's rejoin Leanne. How many Michael Ors are out there? I can tell you folks that there's Michael Ors in every city in the United States of America. We firmly believe in the Tui household that the kid that knows the cure for cancer is walking around inner city Memphis, Tennessee, and all he needs is a chance. All he needs is a chance. And I'm not telling you, I'm not challenging you to go out and adopt a 6'6", 350-pound black kid. It is not for everybody. They eat a lot. Thank goodness we're in the Taco Bell business. You can do something, and you can make a difference. You guys sit here, you think, I'm in college. What can I do? You can do something. Pick whatever it is that you choose to do. Just do it well. There are all kind of opportunities right under your nose. Two words have changed our life. Turn around. Turn around. Get off the beaten path. Get off the golf course. Get out of your biology class. Whatever it may be, it could be right under your nose, the person that needs to help. Inspiring words. Commencement addresses all month this month. This is Lee Habib. That was Leanne Tui, The Blind Side by Michael Lewis, and then the movie Sandra Bullock played her. And what a performance, and what a life, and what a thing to do. This is Our American Stories. We'll be back after these messages. continue with our American stories. Wild Bill Hickok, well, his name conjures up an image 
of an out-of-control gunslinger. He drank, he brawled, he loved cards and the ladies too, and he treated them both with respect. He could be a gentleman or a cold-blooded shooter, depending on the occasion. And he wasn't just passing through life. He was thrilling Americans as he took them on his adventures as the cowboys, gunslingers, and lawmen fought to tame the Wild West. Here to tell the story of Wild Bill Hickok is Roger McGrath, author of Gunfighters, Highwaymen, and Vigilantes, Violence on the Frontier. McGrath is a U.S. Marine, a former history professor at UCLA, and has appeared on numerous History Channel documentaries, and he is a regular contributor for us here in Our American Stories. Here's McGrath. Well, Bill Hickok was a gunfighter and lawman of legendary proportions in the Old West, who also served as a scout for the U.S. Army during the Civil War and later during the Indian Wars. Nearly everything he did in his adult life commanded attention. Even the hand of cards he was holding when shot to death in a Deadwood saloon. In the 1870s, no Western figure was better known. He's the subject of hundreds of articles and books. A half dozen movies have been made about his life, most notably The Plainsman, starring Gary Cooper, and recently Wild Bill, starring Jeff Bridges. There was also a television series, The Adventures of Wild Bill Hickok, which ran for eight seasons and starred Guy Madison. Wild Bill Hickok is born James Butler Hickok in 1837 in Homer, Illinois, a small town 80 miles west of Chicago. The town later changes its name to Troy Grove. James's God-fearing, Bible-reading Christian parents are abolitionists who risk their lives by turning their home into a station for slaves along the Underground Railroad. It is during this time that the lean and wiry young man gets his first taste of hostile gunfire when he and his father are chased by law officers who suspect them of carrying more than just hay in their wagon. A danger of freeing slaves makes a lasting impression on young James, giving him a fearlessness that begins to define him as a man. James helps the family, which also includes three older brothers and two younger sisters, more by his hunting than by his laboring on the farm. From a young age, James is fond of guns and through natural talent and regular practice becomes a crack shot. He also develops the ability to shoot a handgun equally well with either hand. James is a voracious reader and consumes everything he can about America's fiercely independent frontier heroes, especially Daniel Boone and Kit Carson. James Butler Hickok heads west himself to Kansas territory in 1856. Kansas is a battleground between settlers from Illinois and other northern states who want to prohibit slavery there and southerners, mostly from Missouri and Arkansas, who want to establish slavery in the new territory. Hickok, who continues his abolitionist ways, joins Jim Lane's Free State Army to battle with the Free Staters called the Border Ruffians, who have crossed into Kansas from Missouri to attack anti-slavery settlers. Kansas becomes bleeding Kansas, a prelude to this civil war. In 1858, 
Hickok is elected constable of the town of Monticello in the northeastern corner of Kansas. Hickok is now 21 years old and is described as six foot one and 180 pounds with auburn hair and blue-gray eyes. For his size, he has small, almost delicate hands. He has great dexterity and can draw a handgun and manipulate its hammer and trigger with precision and quickness that astonish witnesses. He serves as constable for a year and then goes to work driving freight wagons and stagecoaches for the famous firm of Russell's, Majors, and Waddell, the founders of the Pony Express. While driving a freight wagon, Hickok finds his path blocked by a bear and her cubs. Hickok climbs off the wagon to see if he can frighten the bear off the trail. She has different ideas and charges him. He fires a shot that hits her in the head, but doesn't stop her. She flattens Hickok and begins mauling him. In the life or death struggle, Hickok saves himself by repeatedly stabbing the bear with his bowie knife. Hickok is left badly injured. Russell's Majors and Waddell assign Hickok to the company's Rock Creek Station on the Oregon Trail in Nebraska to recuperate. In July 1861, 24-year-old Hickok is at the Rock Creek Station, a tiny stop on the Pony Express, when David McCandless comes to the station to collect a debt from the company. Here's Old West historian Andrew Nelson. The Pony Express is the fastest means of communication in the Old West, a relay set up between different riders to get letters from one of these outposts to the other. So what Townsend ends up doing are setting up relay stations along the way. And it's at one of those relay stations that Wild Bill Hickok, who at this point is not Wild Bill, but Duck Bill, has his first brush with violence and fame. Horse got my money yet, Duck Bill? McCandless calls on the station manager, Horace Wellman, to come out with the money. McCandless, who nicknames Hickok Duck Bill, says if Hickok is supporting Wellman, he will come inside and drag them both out. Here's Old West historians, Paul Hutton and Marshall Trimble. The station was owned by a tough local character who had southern sympathies by the name of Dave McCandless, and the Pony Express Company hadn't been paying their rent. McCandless was always coming around and harassing the people at the station. So there was animosity between David McCandless and Wild Bill Hickok, and McCandless was a bully. Hickok's distaste for bullies began with his participation in the Underground Railroad and continues with a chance encounter in 1857 with an 11-year-old boy named Bill Cody, who history will remember as Buffalo Bill. Cody first meets Hickok on a driving trip to Salt Lake City when Cody is an extra hand for Russell, Majors, and Waddell, and Hickok is a teamster. During the trip, one of the other teamsters berates and bullies the young Cody until the boy retaliates by throwing a pot of hot coffee into the teamster's face. The teamster reacts instantly. Cody describes what happens next in his autobiography. He sprang for me with the ferocity of a tiger and would undoubtedly have torn me to pieces had it not been for the timely interference of my newfound friend, Wild Bill, who knocked the man down. As soon as he recovered himself, he demanded of Wild Bill what business it was of his that he should put in his oar. 
It's my business to protect that boy or anybody else from being unmercifully abused, kicked, and cuffed. And I'll whip any man who tries it on, said Wild Bill. And if you ever again lay a hand on that boy, little Billy there, I'll give you such a pounding that you won't get over it for a month of Sundays. From that time forward, Wild Bill was my protector and intimate friend, and the friendship thus begun continued until his death. Here's criminal justice professor Arnett Gaston. Hickok's sense of justice, greatly influenced by his parents, caused him to get into situations where he should always stand up for right. He was a defender of the downtrodden. He was a defender of those who couldn't defend himself. And all this added to his horror. Originally from the mountains of North Carolina, McCandless is large and powerful. And some weeks earlier, had easily thrown Hickok to the ground in what was described as a friendly wrestling match. Hickok doesn't give McCandless a chance to do so again. As McCandless steps through the station's doorway, Hickok fires a rifle. A bullet pierces McCandless's heart, and he is blown backwards, falling to the ground dead. Two members of the McCandless gang, they now run to the station. Horace Wellman shoots Woods, and Woods staggers back and falls to the ground. Wellman's wife runs outside and finishes off Woods by hacking him with a hoe. Hickok shoots Gordon, but he somehow runs to a nearby creek. Hickok and several station employees track him down and shoot him to death with a shotgun. Six years later, a fanciful article appears in Harper's Magazine describing how Hickok single-handedly fought and defeated David McCandless and his 10-man gang of border ruffians. He becomes a national hero overnight. Here's Old West historian Marcus Huff. Harper's Weekly was essentially the, uh, the internet of the West. I mean, everyone read it, it was everywhere, and it was the news. To not only have a story about yourself in there, but illustrations that made you look much more dramatic than you really were. It was fantastic for Hickok, uh, professionally. And when we come back, we continue with the story of Wild Bill Hickok here on Our American Stories. And we continue with the story of Wild Bill Hickok here on Our American Stories. And we love telling these stories for so many reasons. But think about what shaped the character of Wild Bill. He grew up defending the downtrodden because his family, well, they were putting their lives on the line, leading the abolition movement. And my goodness, we should all know the story of bloody Kansas because the Civil War was being fought there before it was being fought throughout the nation. That was the battleground. And who was there? Well, James Butler Hickok was there. Now let's return to Roger McGrath and the rest of the story of Wild Bill Hickok. Hickok leaves the Rock Creek Station two weeks after the shooting and travels to Fort Leavenworth to continue the family tradition of fighting against slavery and volunteers as a scout in the Union Army. It's at this time that Hickok develops his signature cavalry-style reverse draw, or twist 
draw that will make him famous. Hickok next leads a Union wagon train from Fort Leavenworth, Kansas to Sedalia, Missouri. Confederate guerrillas attack the wagon train and Hickok barely escapes being captured. It's about this time he earns his nickname Wild Bill. Legend says he stops a bartender from being lynched after a saloon brawl in Independence, Missouri. A woman in the crowd applauds his action and yells, Good for you, Wild Bill! Here's Old West historian, Chris Entz. Bill Hickok was so pretty, it hurts. He was a very compassionate man. He was a decent man. His eyes would reflect that compassion. But if you ever challenged him, he could stare down a rattlesnake. Hickok carries dispatches through every fire for the Union forces during the Battle of Pea Ridge in Arkansas in 1862. A Union victory there ensures Missouri will remain in the Union. In April 1865, after four years with over 620,000 killed and nearly a million more wounded, captured, or missing, Hickok tries his luck as a gambler. In Springfield, Missouri, Hickok finds himself losing heavily in a poker game to Davis Tutt, a former Confederate soldier turned professional gambler who's commonly known as Dave. Hickok gives Tutt a valuable watch as collateral for his gambling debts. Here's Andrew Nelson. He warns Tut he does not want to see him walking around with that watch. So what does Tut do the next day? He walks around with the watch. What happens next has been the basis for countless legends about Old West gunfights. Tut appears on one side of Springfield's town square, Hickok on the other. What follows will later be made iconic by countless dime novels, radio and television dramas, such as Gunsmoke, and Western films such as High Noon. At a distance of about 75 yards, Hickok stops and calls out, Dave, here I am. They draw their guns and fire simultaneously. Hickok's round drills Tut in the heart. Tut calls out, Boys, I'm killed, and drops to the ground, dead. When newspapers publish reports of the shootout, it's the first time the name Wild Bill is used in print. Hickok's legend as a gunfighter skyrockets. After a coroner's jury declares that Dave Tut had died at the hands of James Butler Hickok, Wild Bill is arrested on a charge of manslaughter. He posts bail and pleads not guilty at an initial court hearing. In the trial, Hickok's attorney argues self-defense. The prosecutor argues Hickok could have avoided the fight. The jury is out only 10 minutes and returns a verdict of not guilty. In 1866, Hickok is summoned to Fort Riley, Kansas by a Civil War friend, Captain R.B. Owen, who recommends Hickok for an appointment as a U.S. Deputy Marshal. Hickok becomes a Deputy Marshal and spends a year hunting horse thieves, counterfeiters, deserters, and other such miscreants. He also does some duty as an Army Scout. It's while Hickok is at Fort Riley that he reconnects with William Cody, soon to be known as Buffalo Bill. Cody is serving as a government detective and Army Scout. On January 1st, 
1867. Hickok begins scouting the frontier for one of the finest cavalry commanders of the Civil War, the boy general of the Michigan Volunteers, George Custer. Custer is now a lieutenant colonel in the regulars and commander of the famous 7th Cavalry. Custer calls Hickok his best scout and says he is the consummate plainsman. Custer's wife, the fetching Libby Custer, later said of Hickok, Physically, he was a delight to look upon, tall, lithe, and free in every motion. He rode and walked as if every muscle was perfection, and the careless swing of his body as he moved seemed perfectly in keeping with the man, the country, and the time in which he lived. Hickok can ride, trail, and track, and he's not only a crack shot, but also extraordinary with handguns. He practices with his guns whenever possible and he disassembles and cleans them daily. He can hit several objects thrown in the air at the same time, firing with a gun in each hand. But it's one thing to shoot at targets. It's another thing to shoot at a man who's trying to kill you. In the face of fire, Hickok is not only one of the fastest, but one of the most deadly accurate shootists who have ever lived. In July 1867 appears the first dime novel about Hickok, Wild Bill the Indian Slayer. There's some truth in this because as a scout he fights and kills Indians and will continue to do so through 1868 and well into 1869. He has several close calls. In one fight a Cheyenne warrior drives a lance into Hickok's thigh. But fame often has a lot of sharp edges and has to be handled carefully. There's always the threat of some lowlife trying to earn his spurs. In August 1869, Hickok is elected sheriff of Ellis County, Kansas. The county's largest town is Hayes City, a wild and woolly railroad stop full of buffalo hunters and teamsters and soldiers from nearby Fort Hayes. One writer referred to it as the Sodom of the Plains. Here again is Marcus Huff and historian David Eisenberg. Hay City was uh, a hotbed of youthful indiscretion. It was a cattle town, a railhead. Uh, you had a lot of guys coming there to spend their money. It was fairly lawless until uh, uh, Hickok came around. Once you acquire this, this international fame, which he did, of being the quickest shot you know, in the West, you're gonna get some jerk who wants to make a name for himself by taking you down. He is sheriff only a few days when he confronts Hellraiser Bill Mulvey, who's drunk, waving his gun about and challenging others to fight. Hickok shoots him to death. A month later, Hickok puts two bullets into the head of Sam Strawn under similar circumstances. Hickok's quick-to-shoot policy loses him a re-election bid in November 1869. Hickok remains in Hayes City, again trying his luck as a gambler. He's drinking in one of the saloons when two troopers of Custer's 7th Cavalry suddenly accost the legendary gunslinger. In the ensuing struggle, one of the troopers presses a gun to Hickok's ear and pulls the trigger. But the Remington 44 fails to fire. Hickok's Colt Navy 38 does fire, and the soldier is mortally wounded. Hickok wounds the second soldier with a shot to the knee. 
Hickok then springs to his feet and smashes through a window and into the night, never again to appear in Hayes City. And when we come back, we continue with this remarkable story. I mean, the idea that after all that dangerous duty in bloody Kansas, he decides to be a scout for the Union Army. And let me tell you, being a scout in an army fighting the Confederates, who were in essence fighting a guerrilla warfare on their own turf, it doesn't get much more dangerous as volunteer duty than maybe being a paratrooper in World War II or possibly in the 10th Air Force. When we come back... More with the story of Wild Bill Hickok, here on Our American Stories. continue here on Our American Stories with the story of Wild Bill Hickok. And Roger McGrath, as always, does such a great job on all of these pieces surrounding the frontier and the American West. Let's return to McGrath. In April 1871, Hickok becomes city marshal of Abilene, Kansas. Abilene is the first of famous Kansas cattle towns. Here's Paul Hutton and Andrew Nelson. Abilene had a reputation as being the roughest of all the cattle towns. It was end of trail for the herds coming north from Texas. Everyone's fueled on alcohol, of course, and somebody has to keep the peace. And that's Wild Bill Hickok. So this is an interesting moment in American history where a burgeoning society recognizes that it needs to remove the unsavory elements. But how do you do that? Well, you need to find someone who has one foot in both worlds, who can travel in both circles. Most of the cowboys who drive the herds from Texas to the Abilene Railhead are Confederate veterans or the sons of Confederate veterans. After months on the trail, and with a payoff in their pockets, they intend to have fun. Union veteran Hickok is at odds with them. It's a highly volatile situation with great potential for violence. Confederate veteran and Texan Phil Coe is a giant of a man for his era, six foot four and 225 pounds. He has problems with Hickok from the day he arrives in Abilene, mostly over the way he, Coe, operates his saloon, the Bull's Head Tavern. Goat upset the town with a saloon advertisement painted on the side of the building. A drawing of a bull with a massive erect phallus. Wild Bill painted over it, and Coe swore revenge. Problems further escalate when Hickok and Coe begin to court the same woman. On an October night in 1871, Coe and several of his Texas friends are drinking in the Alamo Saloon. Their revelry spills into the street, and Coe draws his gun and fires into the air. Sound of the gunfire brings Hickok on the run, and he demands to know who fired the shot. Who fired that shot? Coe says he fired at a stray dog who tried to bite him. Hickok demands Coe's gun. Coe either hesitates to comply or refuses, depending on the witness and Hickok immediately draws both pistols and fires. 
Hickok is hit in the stomach and collapses. A second later, Hickok catches movement out of the corner of his eye and spins and fires twice more. The bullets tear into Mike Williams, Hickok's own deputy, who is rushing to Hickok's aid. Williams dies on the spot. The death haunts Hickok for the rest of his life. Meanwhile, Ko, in terrible pain, struggles for several days and dies. Two months later, Abilene's city council relieves Hickok of his duties, and he again returns to gambling. Hickok drifts across the West for the better part of a year. It's said he drinks too much and wins too little. It's here Buffalo Bill finds him. In September 1873, Buffalo Bill hires his old friend to perform in Cody's theatrical productions, Scouts of the Plains, and Buffalo Bill, King of the Bordermen. Here again is Chris Entz. How you doing, Bill? Buffalo Bill Cody and Wild Bill Hickok had known one another for a long time. He knew about the Wild West and convinced Hickok that we had to share this with a new generation of people who didn't know the Wild West as they did. And Cody invites him to be a part of this Wild West show. Let's just get this over with. I feel ridiculous. Hickok is well paid, but he hates appearing on stage and often stammers or forgets his lines. He's embarrassed by the histrionic melodrama and false heroics. He is a man of action, not words. He quits in March 1874. Back to the high plains goes Hickok. He spends much of his time in the railroad town of Cheyenne, Wyoming. And it's here in February 1876 that he marries Agnes Lake. Hickok honeymoons with Agnes in her hometown of Cincinnati. But he then heads west to the newest mining boomtown, Deadwood, in the Black Hills of Dakota Territory. Two years earlier, it was General Custer on a special expedition who discovered gold in the Black Hills. Hickok arrives in Deadwood in July 1876 and bumps into many of his old friends. Mining's not for him, though, and he spends most of his time gambling in saloons. I don't think you could have found any place more vile than Deadwood, South Dakota. It just was a place that um, had no law. You had people stealing from one another. You had people jumping one another. There are people that are being killed in a very violent way. We had all of this going on. And in this scene, you find Wild Bill Hickok. Your call. Shortly after noon on August 2nd, 1876, as America's celebrating its 100th anniversary, Hickok strolls into the number 10 saloon and joins a poker game in progress. Hickok asks Charles Rich, who is seated in a chair against the wall, to exchange seats with him. Rich only laughs and tells Wild Bill not to worry. Nobody is gunning for him. A few minutes later, Hickok repeats the request, and this time all the poker players Carl Mann, William Massey, and Charles Rich begin ribbing Hickok for his excessive caution. A drifter named Jack McCall enters the saloon. He draws no attention. He had been in the number 10 only the night before, losing all the money he had on him in a card game to Hickok and others. Get some rest, take it easy. Here, have some breakfast on me. 
Here again is Marshall Trimble and Chris Entz. McCall's offended that Hickok has given him money to go and get something to eat and to calm down, but McCall isn't having any of it. Come in. While Bill Hickok and Jack McCall were gambling one night, he was a, a drifter, a ne'er-do-well, a loser. The guy's got a chip on his shoulder of some kind. McCall is just a punk looking for a way to start a fight with Walpo Hickok. And that's precisely what he does. Now McCall moves along the bar until he's behind Hickok. While Bill's attention is on Massey, a former steamboat captain on the Mississippi and Missouri rivers. Hickok is losing heavily to Massey, and Hickok remarks, the old duffer, he broke me on the hand. Those are Hickok's last words. There's the explosion of a revolver, and McCall yells, damn you, take that. Jack McCall is a drunk. He's somebody who's looking for a way of fast fame. McCall comes in, and before Hickok knows it, takes his gun and shoots him in the back of the head. Hickok, face down, on the table, and is dead. After Hickok dies with aces and eights in his hand, that hand becomes a powerful symbol in Western literature and film that writers and filmmakers use to signal that death is at hand. 39-year-old Hickok outlives his close friend George Custer by less than two months. Custer had earlier fallen at the Battle of the Little Bighorn. Captain Jack Crawford recalls of his friend Hickok. He was loyal in his friendship, generous to a fault, and invariably espoused the cause of the weaker against the stronger in a quarrel. Hickok is buried in Deadwood Cemetery with the inscription, Wild Bill, killed by the assassin Jack McCall. McCall is tried in Deadwood's Miners Court. A surprising number of character witnesses appear on behalf of McCall, saying he's, he's a quiet, peaceable man that Hickok had earlier threatened to kill. Hickok is called one of the premier gunfighters of the frontier, who is quick to shoot without giving an opponent a chance. The jury finds the defendant not guilty. McCall leaves for Cheyenne and Laramie City. He doesn't go far enough. The first trial is declared not binding because Deadwood is technically on the Sioux Reservation and the Deadwood's Miners Court and its proceedings are therefore extra-legal. McCall is arrested again and this time tried in Yankton, Dakota Territory. This time he's found guilty of murder and hanged. McCall becomes a footnote in history, while Bill becomes a legend. And great job, as always, by Greg Hengler. And a special thanks to Roger McGrath. He's the author of Gunfighters, Highwaymen, and Vigilantes, Violence on the Frontier. And we're so proud to have him as a major contributor in so much of our Western canon. Thanks again to Roger McGrath. Wild Bill Hickok's story here on Our American Story.
Get more at ouramericannetwork.org and sign up for our weekly newsletter. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And now it's time for our American Dreamers series, sponsored by the great folks at the Job Creators Network. And they work hard to help small business become big ones by fighting for public policy that allows them to do just that. And you'll definitely want to stick around for this story because it's about the man behind perhaps one of the most recognizable brands in American history, brought to us by our own Joey Cortez. The world was a little simpler a little more magical. There were more heroes, more things to, to think about. And Joe DiMaggio, Mickey Mantle, they were my heroes. They were some of my heroes. You are listening to the story of a man who you all know, but don't really know. You know his brand, so you know his name, which wasn't always his name. He was born Ralph Lifshitz, the son of two Jewish immigrant outcasts, from the Soviet Union. And despite a modest upbringing in the Bronx, New York, everyone knew Ralph as the man with swagger and style. You know, I had older brothers, so, you know, when you have older brothers to live up to, in a way, you sort of, uh, you're advanced more than kids your own age. So maybe I sort of wore what my brothers wore. And, and uh, I, I never thought about style. I didn't know what that word meant. And he didn't have to. He just naturally had it. I'm telling you, every time I see a picture of this man, I think to myself, my God, that man has style. Everything about him screams style. The perfect man to stop the European fashion moguls who were ready to take control of the American fashion market. You see, at the time, there wasn't much of an American fashion industry. And while the Beatles and their British invasion were pretty much taking control of the American rock and roll scene, the European fashion icons from Italy, the United Kingdom, and France were ready to take the American fashion scene by storm. Standing in their way was Ralph Lifshitz. But first, to complete his style, Ralph, at 16 years old, would change his name from Lifshitz to Lauren. That's right, folks. This is the story of Ralph Lauren. Years later, after serving in the Army, working as a salesman for Brooks Brothers, and then a necktie manufacturer, Ralph began designing his own ties, marked by his wide, bold, and colorful designs during a time when plain skinny ties were in vogue. In the beginnings, when I started, the necktie industry was full of men wearing hats, and they were old men. And it was a very dead industry. And here I came along, 
And I had a sports car, and I come with a tweed jacket, and I zip into my car with a bag of ties, and I go to the stores around the, around the area. I, uh, I was selling what I was, what I believed in. Selling himself and the American dream. You see, Ralph really couldn't afford that sports car. I mean, the man was selling ties out of a single drawer in a showroom of the Empire State Building, but he was investing in himself his image, his brand, something his company would make possible for everyday Americans too. Helping them dress and brand themselves in lifestyles they previously couldn't afford or find in stores. From the nostalgic Americana style of cattle herding cowboys to the style of Wall Street bankers, Ralph made those accessible to everyday Americans. I'm inspired by a lifestyle that is, that is happy you know, we all go through our life hoping that we're going to be successful, hoping that we're going to be able to buy the house that we want, hoping that we can have the ranch or the, you know. So I was inspired by those worlds, you know. I was inspired. The thought of being a rancher, the thought about living in a log cabin, that was one of my dreams. But also I had another dream, you know, in the reality, of, you know, of, uh, I love stone houses. You know, I love Persian rugs. I like, uh, I like elegance. I like them both. And... I think I, in terms of what I was doing, is I wasn't, my things are new, but they're inspired by a concept of living as, as opposed to, to fashion. It's not just a jacket, here's a jacket, my shoulders come out here now, and, and buy it now because it's the hot new look. My jacket was the tweed jacket with the suede elbow patches, but it was great fabric. Maybe it had a what you thought you can buy in England, what you thought Cary Grant was wearing and Fred Astaire, you could not walk into a store and buy. You couldn't buy, you couldn't walk into a store. No stores had that. When I came along, the business was not at all like. The things that I made, you could not buy. You couldn't find it. And they had a sense of familiarity because they were traditional in the sense that they had a, they weren't wild, but they were, they were, it's like injecting something and bringing it back in a sense of life. You couldn't walk into Bloomingdale's. You couldn't walk into Saks Fifth Avenue and buy a hacking jacket. Now, a hacking jacket was worn by the people that rode, you know, in England. They get dressed and they wore the hacking jacket. It had flair on the side vents. So one thing is the product. The other thing is, is where it goes. A man gets dressed. He goes, he's like, I have to go to dinner. He's, uh, he goes and buys a, a tie and he wants to look elegant that night. He's going to go back to his, he's going to feel elegant when he gets dressed that night. And he's going to go to a place and he says, hey, wait a minute, I have this great club I'm going to and I'm going to wear this and I know I'm going to look great. So he, he feels strong about himself and he knows it's the appropriate thing to wear to this place. What I did was see these things. The hacking jacket represented a life that I loved. It was old England. It, they look great. I don't know what it was at the time, but I said, you know, that hack, I'd love to have that. Right. I couldn't find it in the store. I said, where can I get that? Where can I get it? And you couldn't get it anywhere. So I said, I'd like to make that. So I made it so you can wear it. It's a sport jacket. And these things, they sound vague, possibly, because they're part of our vernacular today, but it, it didn't exist. And neither did his first product, the wide tie. Well... It existed, but it just wasn't fashionable, and you really couldn't find them in stores. But soon enough, 
Ralph caught the attention of one of the largest department stores in the country. From selling ties out of a single drawer in the Empire State Building, to landing a meeting with Bloomingdale's. And when we come back, you won't believe the story you're about to hear. And what a story it is. A young man fashions the fashion business in an image that he thought the American people would love, and boy, did they. Ralph Lauren's story continues here on Our American Stories. Our American Stories, and we return to Ralph Lauren's story. We left off with him entering his first sale with a pretty big client in New York City, Bloomingdale's. We bring you back to the late 1960s, and a young, handsome, and confident Ralph Lauren arrives in his sports car to a meeting with Bloomingdale's, eager to strike a deal, but not too eager. He showed them to the Bloomingdale tie buyer. That's Marvin Traub, a former president of Bloomingdale's. Who said, I like them, I'll buy them, but I don't want that Ralph Lauren label on it. I want a Bloomingdale label. Now here's Ralph starting and struggling in business, about to get an order from Bloomingdale's. He closed his sample case and said, I will not accept the order without my name. It's a matter of staying on a path, staying in a direction, having a point of view, believing in what you're doing, and having the, the, the scope and the focus to say, this is who I want to be, this is what I like. An important lesson for entrepreneurs, betting on yourself and your product, and having the wisdom for knowing when to strike a deal and when to walk away. And good thing Ralph did. Because just a few months later, he would get a call back from Bloomingdale's. Here again is Marvin Traub. I thought the ties were terrific. And if he wanted his name on it, that was fine because I felt the ties would sell. Just one year with Bloomingdale's, Ralph sold a half million dollars in ties. And soon enough caught the attention of other big department stores followed by an expansion from the tie industry into upscale menswear, women's wear, lifestyle, and home products. Ralph soon became a household name around the world. By 1986, Ralph Lauren's company was worth over an estimated half billion dollars. At a glance, things were going quite well, but a look behind the scenes told another story. In 1987, just as Ralph was about to make the cover of Time Magazine, he was also diagnosed with a brain tumor. At the same time as I was on the cover of Time Magazine, I knew Time Magazine was coming out and I knew I was going in for a brain tumor operation. I couldn't enjoy either one of them. I couldn't enjoy Time Magazine. And the two 
the two distances of life, the fact that, that on one hand I hit the heights of one side, and the other side the impossible thing happened on Time magazine, and the impossible thing happened on Brain Tumor. How could I get a brain tumor? Where'd that come from? Where'd that come from? I look great. Where'd that come from? You know, that happens to somebody else. Time magazine happens to somebody else. I was split right in half. So that alone was an incredible contrast in my life. Just my life has been an incredible contrast in growing up and go in my career. The heights were so hard to even deal with in a funny way. So the brain tumor coming along. Uh, fortunately, it was not. It was benign. The experience of looking at my wife and my family. I remember being being told that I have to go in for an operation. I remember seeing my daughter and my son were very little at the time. We were in this big open space, and I said, "I can't believe this." I all of a sudden stepped out of my life and was looking at them as if I wasn't there anymore. And thankfully, Ralph had a successful surgery. And came out of it with a newfound perspective on life. I was able to step away from myself and see life as something that was not always going to be here. I know the feeling of saying I may not be around tomorrow. I have a lot of sensitivity to other people that somehow at this age、uh, I'm not groping in the world trying to be something. I know who I am. And so did. The rest of the world. Just two years later, Ralph Lauren's dreams would come true when one of his childhood heroes, Audrey Hepburn, would present him with the Oscar of the fashion industry, awarding Ralph with the Council of American Fashion Designers Lifetime Achievement Award. Here's Jeff Madoff, a close business associate of Ralph Lauren. There was one of his muses, his icons, Audrey Hepburn. The woman that he watched when he was a little kid in the movies, now handing him this statue that for him could have been the Oscar. Remember the princess? I got her. <laughs> Ralph was sitting at the throne of the fashion industry, but that throne wasn't very sturdy. His company, suffering from distribution problems and massive expenditures on brand recognition, was on the road. To bankruptcy. Luckily, Ralph was thrown a lifeline by Goldman Sachs, buying 28% of his company, worth over an estimated quarter billion dollars today. Soon enough, Goldman Sachs brought Ralph Lauren's company public. This scared Ralph. While Goldman helped salvage his company, allowing him to expand and open up restaurants and stores in almost every major hub around the world. And perhaps becoming one of the most recognizable brands in human history, Ralph feared that he would have less and less control over his brand. Though with bold and crafty leadership and marketing, Ralph managed to instill his undying legacy within his company, his undying style—a style marked by Ralph's nostalgia for the American West, a life of hard work, grit, and meaning, and a style marked by the future. He always envisioned for himself one of accomplishment and success, which all goes back to the very people he admired as a kid. I was very influenced by movies. I was very influenced by 
uh, a world that had a sense of dream, that had a sense of something else. And what I was influenced in these places was the good guy, the 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 Hopalong Cassidy, um, not the corny guy, but the, there was the man on the white horse. You know, if you think of a cowboy, you think of fringe jackets and old leather things. Think of a you think of certain um, images that that represent something that are never dying. I always like country clothes, tweediness. I always loved my history teacher who wore gum sole shoes and suede elbow patches. Uh, so it's a combination of of heroes in a way that um, had a, had a something to them. Heroes like the actors who both dressed and conducted themselves with class, and the gritty adventurous characters they played in the movies. A very unique thing to have a brand inspired by two entirely different worlds. If you watch Gary Cooper in the movies, you'd see Gary Cooper was a very elegant man. At the same time, he had a ranch where he grew up, uh, and you'd see, you'd see uh, High Noon, and you really believed he was a cowboy. Well, I love this guy in both roles. You know, I, he was a hero to me, and he was rugged and tough, and at the same time, he was very elegant. And, and so it wasn't, um, you know, I don't believe you can live, you can have to be one thing. Like the American dream, a notion that has allowed people to not only dream for a different life, but to attain it. Illustrated by the very life of Ralph Lauren and his company, helping people from around the world be the people they dream to be. You know, I think what's been interesting in, in, in my life is the impossible things have happened in so many different ways. I never went to fashion school. What am I doing here? You know, what am I doing on these lists? What am I doing with these fashion shows? How am I doing it? I can't tell you because it's an amazing thing to me. It's not, I'm doing it. I know I'm doing it because it didn't exist before I came. I didn't didn't happen before and someone said, okay, Ralph, do it. And I've done products that I never, I didn't have any training. I don't know how it's happening. It's an amazing thing for me. At the same time, I don't know how I had the brain to and all those things. But life is about that in a way. A, a fellow I work with that came at the office said, he was from another company, said, he said, you know, up till now I thought I had to change in this world, in this business, because people are tough and rough, you know, and they're not always so nice. He said, I was just in your company, I was working with your people, and they're so nice. You know, and I think maybe, maybe I have the right answer. Maybe people aren't all that tough in this business. My sense is that you can make your life be whatever you want it to be. And great job on that, Joey. Impossible things have happened in my life. He never went to fashion school. He said no to Bloomingdale's in his early 20s. He wanted his name on the label. Crazy, right? Goldman Sachs, by the way, comes in, the big bad banks, and saves the company. The American dream here, that's what we call these stories, American dreamer stories, none better than Ralph Lauren's. This is Our American Stories.
And we continue with our American stories, and now it's time for our Faith in Action series, where we take a look closely at how faith impacts the lives of people around this country, and in a positive way. We don't do enough of that in this country, and at least half of us or more take our our faith seriously. And then for all the people who don't have faith, my goodness, we want your stories too, and how whatever you believe positively affects the people around you and your community particularly as it relates to things like generosity and love and compassion, all those things and more. Today's feature is from Barry McGuire, the CEO of his third-generation family company, McGuire's, which is the largest car care products company in the entire country. Barry says that their primary customers are the 30 million Americans who are car enthusiasts and whom he likes to call car guys. Here's Barry. Car guys are the same the world over. We're kind of unique. I don't think there's anybody else quite like us. And car guys are gals too. If you love a car, you're a car guy. It doesn't matter if you're a lady. But car guys across the board are caring, are generous, respectful, family-oriented, high values, people that go the extra mile for you. If you're in a car show and, and, and your car is not working right and the judges are coming, the other people in your class will come over and do everything they can to help you get your car running right. When you're out on the road with an old car, and I've experienced it myself, when you have old cars, you break down. Within five minutes, I guarantee, even in the remote areas, it's crazy. They come out of the woodwork and all of a sudden you got one, two, three car guys, they're crawling into your car, they're helping you. Kids grow up in the, as a car guy with their parents. They have quality time with their dad. They're spending hundreds of hours working a car with their dad. How do you keep connected with an adolescent today? But when you're working on a car that he's gonna have when he gets his license, or she's gonna be in license, and you have all these hours, yeah, and while you're wrenching and teaching them all this work ethic and everything, but you're also talking about life and God. And I had one kid, I said, well, you love your daddy. I see you love your dad, but doesn't he, doesn't he discipline you, make you do your chores? He's, oh yeah, he makes me do all that, but when we're working in the car, we're buddies. He says, it's like Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. The car hobby is a righteous hobby, it really is. It brings out the best in all of us. And all of us who are car guys are better people and have better friends because we're car guys. And I speak to car guy groups often. And I say to them, you know, if you could earn your way into heaven, you guys would be at the front of the line. It's a subculture that represents the best of America. And if we had more car guys, there would be less wars. You know, I mean, I see rich guys talking to poor guys. I see Jay Leno hanging out with kids with their Japanese cars, just having a ball with them, you know. I was walking one day and this guy came up and we started talking and I knew he was from the Middle East. I said, uh, you get hassled a lot? He said, oh man. He says, I just what I have to go through. He's, except when I'm at car shows. I said, what are these car shows? It, everybody, it didn't matter. You just, we're all car guys. Where's my camera when I need it? You know, that's exactly it. So the car hobby is the righteous hobby, but it also has given me a, a pulpit from there because people know who I am and they see me smile a lot and they say, why do you smile so much? And they, do you really want to know? A <laughs> hundred years from now, it won't matter how many cars we were on or how many good things we did for people. It doesn't matter, did you accept Jesus Christ? My dad, he was the ultimate church man and I emulated that. 
I had no joy. And I knew it. It's where most people listening to us, no joy, no bounce in their step. You know, you have problems, you, know, you can't quite figure out what's going on in the world. And, and there, everybody has problems in their life, you know. And if you look at it as problems and not opportunities, it's just the world beats you up, you know, and there's no joy. I wanted joy. Irene, I really wanted joy. And so did my wife. We both prayed about it a lot. We went to a luncheon that our church put on, and it happened that we had a guy named Herb Ellingwood, who was the Legal Affairs Secretary for Governor Reagan as our speaker. Okay, I'm dating myself now, but this is 1973. And I didn't have any responsibilities that day. I never spoke, I never was asked to do anything, but the pastor put me right beside Herb Ellingwood. And for an hour straight, Herb Ellingwood went off telling me one story after another how he was leading people to the Lord in meeting rooms, on airplanes, in restaurants, wherever he was. And he was laughing and he was having so much fun. And I wow, that's what I want. And I walked away in tears. I said, God, I want what he has. I want to do that. That's, that's what I want. That's what I hunger for. I want to be like him. When I get to heaven, I'm, after I see my mom and dad and loved ones, I'm going to go find Herb Ellingwood. I'm going to, go, I'm going to hug you and say, you won't remember me. <laughs> but I was just a punk kid, but you spoke truth to me. And you spent one hour. You changed my life. And you have no idea how many people have come to the Lord because of you through me. And I have been committed to being the Herb Ellingwood to as many people as I could possibly be. The rest of my life, I want to be that layman to another layman, as many lay people as I could possibly get to ignite, to ignite them like he ignited me, as he ignited me. And I was horrible at sharing my faith. And I, I studied and I read stuff, and you're supposed to do this and do this and do that. And I was frustrated and you know, I couldn't get them there. I thought I had to get them saved at the moment. And if I didn't get them saved, I was frustrated. Why I must have said something wrong or I brought them to church and the pastor didn't say the right things. They didn't get saved. and. I was always going to anger along with my tenacious. And then finally, after three years of doing it so much, it all of a sudden I started, I got this thing of, he just says love on people. They'll know you're my disciple by your love, not by your words, not even by your Bible knowledge. Just love on people are hurting. Just love on them. And they open up and all of a sudden you connect. It's so easy to connect with people. So I started doing it. This is really fun. So in 1976, I decided God was leading me into full-time ministry. So I closed the door one day. I had the most fervent prayer of my life. As I look back now, I've thought about it many times. I wept. And I said, I just want to do what you want me to do. I'm excited about my business. And, and if I leave the business, it'll fail. Because there's nobody, I'm the third generation. There's nobody else to lead the business. It's a big deal. But I want to honor you, and I really feel you're leading me into full-time ministry, and I don't know what that means. I have two little daughters I got to feed, but if you want me to do that, I'll do it, God. But I, and I actually said, I didn't say you had to speak to me in an audible voice, but I said, you are almost going to have to speak to me in an audible voice. Not 20 minutes later, a guy walked in my office by the name of Dave McNutt. I didn't know him at all. He'd been up on the platform and spoken a couple of times. I knew he grew up a missionary kid, grew up in Africa. That's about all I knew about him. I'd never talked to him, never exchanged a glance with him. I have no relationship with this guy. He walks into my office. So I said, well, hi, Dave, how you doing? He said, oh, fine, Barry. I, I was driving by, I was in the area, thought I'd stop in and ask you, how's it going? 
So I made a snap decision that he probably wasn't, as a missionary kid, probably wasn't into cool cars and shiny paint finishes. So I started telling the people I was sharing my faith with. And he quickly straightened up and looked at me and he says, God's given you a wonderful ministry here, hasn't he? Well, that was an odd thing, given the prayer that I just prayed. And I said, why, why would you say that? He said, well, it's obvious uh, a pastor couldn't reach the people you're reaching. As a businessman, you can reach them. It, and it's obvious that your business is your pulpit. Wow. I just sat there and said, this is unbelievable. I just prayed, and I told him this prayer I just prayed. He said, well, that explains it. I said, explains what? He says, I just dropped some missionaries off at Orange County Airport. I'm driving up Red Hill, and God spoke to me and said, go see Barry McGuire. He said, I argued with him all the way here. I knew where your building was, but I said, God, I don't know this guy. I don't even know what kind of business he's in. I'm going to make a fool of myself, but he would not let me go. And I walked in your entrance downstairs. I thought, well, he's not going to be here anyway, or he'd be too busy. And before I know it, I'm going up. He's, my heart is pounding in my throat. I don't know what to say, but how's it going? That was 1976. It brought in these two exciting things in my life, and all of a sudden I realized they were one thing, and my business is my pulpit. My business is my pulpit. And he's remembering that story like it happened yesterday. It was 1976, folks. And when we come back, we continue the story of Barry Maguire, his faith story on our American story. stories and Barry Maguire's story of finding his calling in business and that his business was indeed his pulpit. And Barry's the CEO of a pretty big business. His third generation family company, Maguire's, is the largest car care products company in the country. Let's return to Barry and his story. I'm in, in the hotel and I want to go to dinner and my Uber app won't work. So I said, Carol, I gotta go outside to get the Uber app. I wanna get there before Richie gets there because he'll give the, the Gallagher's credit card. I wanna meet him too, but I wanna buy his dinner. I owe him. So we go outside and the Uber app doesn't work outside. Karen said, you better just get a taxi. So I said to the guy, hey, I'll take the taxi there. He said, oh, that taxi's taken. What? It's the only taxi there. I said, what? That taxi's taken? He said, yeah, the lady behind you, that's her taxi. Oh. Well, how long will it take to get in the taxi? Well, it's five o'clock, it's kind of busy right now. It might take about 10 minutes. Blood's draining from my head. I think, oh no, this is not good. The lady back there says, sir, ah uh, yes, just take my taxi. What, just take my taxi. My husband's upstairs, I have no idea what he's doing. <laughs> you know, we'll take the next taxi. Just go ahead and use that taxi. Well, thank you very much. I get in the taxi. First sentence, profanity. Next sentence, profanity. Next sentence, profanity. The guy is absolutely out of control. He's yelling. You know, where do you want to go? Nah, 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 nah. Every time you just say, Holy Spirit, give me the words, you know. Well, it turns out the guy just lost his wife. She died from cancer. It's a horrible, it's gone on for months. She's in a lot of pain. His kids are totally out of control. He doesn't know what to do with them. He is out of control. He's at his wit's end. And I said, you know, God says to all of us, come into me, all you are burden and heavy laden, I'll give you rest. 
and he yells with the same intensity, rest, boy, don't I need rest. <laughs> I had him, I knew I had him then. And it's by the time we get to the restaurant, I mean, he is just like, oh man, God put you in my taxi, I can't believe this. So we get out and I said, if you give me your cell number, I will find a church near you and I'll, I'll send you a name of a church for you. He said, would you do that for me? I said, absolutely. So he gives me his cell number. I said, could we pray for you? He said, would you do that? I said, absolutely, I'd do that. So here we are in front of the restaurant, traffic going by, and Karen and I and this taxi driver, arm in arm, and we're all emotional. Do you realize what God had to do to make that happen? He had to keep the guy upstairs. He had to get the gal to say, hey, you just go on. It's not my taxi. You just go. I mean, all the things. He happened to be the taxi right there. When you do things like that, it changes you. It changes you. What does that do to your faith? I mean, most Christians have never seen a miracle. They don't have any fun. Let me tell you, when that happens, you walk away, you got mojo. You're just like, yes, God just used me. Most Christians have never had that experience. So I say, follow the nudge. We all know what the nudge is. Everybody knows what the nudge is. You, 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 oh, I, should, I should go talk to them. Oh, I don't have time. You know, I'm in a hurry. You know. uh, I'm talking to somebody and they need prayer. Do I offer to pray? They'll, they'll think I'm a fanatic. You know. Should I bring God in this conversation? No, it wouldn't fit. You know, we have all these excuses. That's all they are, excuses. God's nudging us. That's His Holy Spirit speaking to our spirit, saying go. And so now when I've got myself into jams, I know, but God, you're there. I'll give you the most pronounced one. The most pronounced one. I had a joint venture partner. My family was dysfunctional. They didn't ever wax a car in their lives. And they were fighting me and driving me out of my mind. And finally said they're going to sell their half of the company. So I had to find somebody to buy their stock. So I got a joint venture equity firm to buy their stock. I had a son-in-law who struck the deal with them, who ended up going south on me and, and divorcing my daughter. And he did not strike a great deal with me, but my mother was dying and I had to be with my mom. And I just said, God, I can't be over there. I just have to trust you to all work out. So I ended up five years later with this guy gonna throw me out of my company, okay? He's gonna throw me out of my company. This was 2008. I had three board members, he had three board members, and we had a independent board member, and I found out too late that he always buys off the independent board member, then he has control of the board. And so I find out tomorrow morning, I'm gonna be thrown out of my business, okay? I've lost my grandfather's business. I've lost my 100-year-old family business. I'm, at that point, I'm uh, 65 years old. How do I start over? My ministry, everything is built around my being a car guy, you know, my, my business. It's all gone. My money's gone. I lost everything. Everything. My life is gone, okay? You know what I did? When I went home, I didn't tell my wife. I'm so argue that I should have, but she worries about security, and, and I just knew it was going to work out, so I didn't want to worry her. And I prayed, I prayed one of the shortest prayers of my life. I said, God, tonight I'm, I, I, I really don't want to pray. And I'm just going to pray for a moment. I just check in and say, I love you. And I live for your purpose. You know I live for your purpose. And because of that, I know you honor your word. 
and that means that you make everything in my life work together for good. If I lose my business, I can't even imagine, but if I lose my business, you've got something else planned. You're in it, and I'm good, and I love you. And as God hears my voice right now, I went immediately to sleep. I didn't toss and turn. I went to sleep immediately. I slept soundly all night long. I didn't wake up once during the night. I woke up fresh the next morning. And I went to my attorney's office. It was a phone call, teleconference, board meeting. My three guys were on the phone, his three guys, and him and me. And, and I'm in my attorney's office. So I walk in the attorney's office that morning, and, and both of my attorneys are smiling. And I said, okay, you guys know something that, that, that I don't know. They said, oh yeah, we, we definitely do. <laughs> We've been working all night for you. And we found out some really cool stuff. Well, tell me, tell me. He said, well, do you remember that first board meeting that you had when you elected your seventh board member? Yeah. Well, do you remember there was a court recorder in that meeting? I'd forgotten that, but this guy is so litigious that he actually had a court recorder recording everything that was said in that meeting. Okay, that was weird. So I said, we decided to read what she wrote. So after you voted on your seventh board member, one of your guys asked the question, do our bylaws allow for seven board members? And your joint venture partner said, that's a really good question. We need to check that out. So we decided we'd go back and check the bylaws. And guess what? Your bylaws don't allow for seven board members. They don't allow for six board members. That seventh board member is not a board member. He can't vote you out. <laughs> you follow what I'm saying? So he didn't have control of the board. We were 50-50. That was hilarious. I went to the conference room with my attorney. We started the conference call. And they're going off and they're trying to run the meeting without me. And I said, gentlemen, um, I, I think I'm chairman of the board. Oh, that's right, Barry's chairman. Oh yeah, we forgot, you go, bro, you, you go do your chairman thing. They're just mocking me. They, all pretense of being nice was over. They just mocked me. I said, well, thank you very much. We'll call the meeting to order and we have an agenda before us. And we want to change the agenda. They didn't want to go through the reading of the minutes and all finance. They just want to get rid of me. If we want to change the agenda. I said, well, that would require a vote, but we can do that. Okay, I move that we change the agenda. Second, okay. Of course, a four to three vote. I said, motion failed. What, what do you mean motion failed? I said, well, yeah, yeah, it failed. They said, no, 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 so-and-so, so-and-so, so-and-so. That's four votes. I said, oh, well, you know, <laughs> as it turns out, we just found out that I won't use the name, but as so-and-so, uh, he's not a board member. What do you mean he's not a board member? Of course he's a board member. He's been a board member for five years. Well, you know, actually, um, the bylaws, we just found our bylaws only allow for six board members. So he's not a board member. What? Wait a minute, you can't pull that. They started giving me all kinds of profanity. You effing this and you son of a this. And they just went, they were going nuts. And finally one of them says, you, the Christian, that you would stoop so low. And I said, gentlemen, uh, I'm the CEO of McGuire's. And I have a fiduciary responsibility to uphold the law of the land. This wasn't planned, but it just came out of me. And the law of the land says our bylaws run our corporation. And our bylaws say we have six board members. Motion failed. 
dead silence until one of them says, I move we adjourn. This is a second. A second. Boom. Out. In eight minutes. I just broke out laughing. That was the funniest thing I've ever seen in my life. I said, God, you are just amazing. And that's wholehearted faith, and it's effortless. When you love him first, and you live your life for his purpose, right? To move everybody, every day, closer to Jesus. And there you have it, a man's faith in action. And we take those stories seriously as we take people who are not of faith seriously as well. That's what we do here on Our American Stories every day. Tell it straight and get out of the way and let the voices of the American people stand. And if you've got great faith in action stories, send them our way. And by the way, business uh, from the pulpit too, because pastors are pastors and he had a ministry himself. But if you have a great faith in action story, again, send them our way at ouramericannetwork.org. And let's listen to some of our best, and that's Jackie Robinson and how he put his faith into action. And of course, our favorite, and that's our hour on Reverend Martin Luther King, and we'll call him doctor, but he was a reverend, and how he put his faith into action to change a country. This is Lee Habib, Barry McGuire's story, a third-generation family business's story, here on Our American Stories.